Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data center podcast brought to you by the teams at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray and Senior Reporter Natalie Bannerman. We are also joined live today by Simon Ford, who is the AVP for Europe, the Middle East and Africa at Cyrus One. Simon, welcome to the Digital Digest. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very pleased to be here. And we're very pleased to have you here as well, Simon. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to come back to you very soon. Um, but first of all, it's time for the news. Uh, so here's a quick roundup of what's been happening since we last recorded. We have heard that Vodafone and Qualcomm have developed a technical blueprint for equipment suppliers to deliver 5G networks using Open RAN. In Texas, Data Foundry won a Supreme Court decision against the city of Austin concerning discriminatory energy rates at its data centers. Europe's United Group has launched a new Southeast Europe wholesale operation and hired Paolo Ficini from Sparkle to lead it. Bulk Infrastructure has completed the marine survey for its Havsil subsea cable, with the system now fully contracted. And Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, the UK's first digital infrastructure fund, has acquired its first digital assets in the Czech Republic and Norway. And we've just heard as well in the um, hour or so before we record today that Brazil's IHS has taken controlling stake in Telecom Italia's Fiberco. Um, but on that note, there's plenty more happening in telecoms. So we're going to start today with Telecoms Roundup from Natalie. Over to you. Thanks, Melanie. Um, so, yeah, quite a, quite a bit of news, actually. Uh, so at the end of last week, uh, the Walt Disney Company actually selected AWS for its global rollout of its online streaming video service, Disney Plus, uh, a name I'm sure that we're all familiar with. Uh, the news actually builds on the fact that AWS has been uh, Disney's preferred public cloud infrastructure provider for its Disney Plus streaming service, which actually uh, surpassed 100 million subscribers uh, just uh, 16 months after its launch in November 2019. Uh, using AWS's infrastructure, the Walt Disney Company has been able to roll out Disney Plus to uh, around 59 countries across North America, Europe, Asia Pacific and Latin America. Now, according to Joe um, Inzarello, who is EVP and CTO of Direct-to-Consumer at the Walt Disney Company, AWS has been our preferred cloud provider for years and its proven global infrastructure and expansive suite of services has contributed meaningfully to the incredible success of uh, Disney Plus. This latest announcement will see Disney Plus um, expand its use of AWS's services to include more than 50 technologies such as machine learning, database, storage, content delivery, serverless and analytics. So many congratulations to both AWS and Disney Plus as they ramp up their content streaming rollout. Next, Quintilian, the Alaskan carrier, will connect its Arctic ground station to Equinix's uh, satellite data center, as well as to at least 12 polar orbiting satellites a day, according to, uh, sorry, allowing uh, Quintilian to serve customers in the state. Specifically, Quintilian will connect its fiber with um, Equinix's SE2 International Business Exchange in Seattle, where it will connect to uh, the Equinix Fabrics, which, as we know, is a software-defined interconnection interconnection service. The company also completed its ground station um, uh, just north of Alaska earlier this year and having partnered with the Atlas Space Operations in late 2019. Um, it is a 3.7 meter um, antenna and it operates on an S and X bands and the company expects to see up to 12 polar orbiting satellites passes a day. Um, 
According to Jim Paul, who is Equinix's Vice President of Business Development, he says satellite customers can dynamically scale their uh, digital infrastructure needs by accessing the ecosystem of service providers at Equinix without needing to worry about building all of the infrastructure themselves. So great news for continuing customers in the region. Uh, so also earlier this week, um, EE actually launched new 5G spectrum following the second assignment stage of Ofcom's auction, which completed in March of this year. Uh, back in 2019, for those who are not familiar, EE actually won 8 uh, megahertz overall of the uh, 700 megahertz and the and 3.6 gigahertz bands that were on offer. Um, following this latest auction, EE has actually secured uh, 40 megahertz of 3.6 gigahertz spectrum and securing a piece of the 3.4 uh, to 3.8 gigahertz launch band, which is for 5G, and actually doubles its current holdings. Um, as a result, EE has already carried out work on a number of sites to allow the new spectrum to launch. The company also secured 20 megahertz of paired and a further 20 megahertz of unpaired 7 megahertz spectrum. Uh, 7 megahertz spectrum, for those who don't know, is new to 5G services in the UK, but is already used widely across Europe and will actually support wider and deeper 5G coverage, including uh, indoors. Um, EE has said it will uh, deploy these 20 megahertz of spectrum, of paired spectrum over the coming years. So we'll be keeping an eye on that and congratulations to EE for being one of the first to do so. Now, most recently, uh, Ariaka has acquired SecureCloud, a, a cloud-based SaaS platform provider for an undisclosed sum. Uh, speaking to Capacity, Sashi Karan, who is the CMO of Ariaka, actually said that he the company is not making uh, public the details of the transaction, um, but they he added that there have been no changes to the board composition as a result of the acquisition. Uh, the news actually comes um, as a result of COVID-19, which has actually accelerated the adoption of cloud-first architecture. Uh, with the consumption of network and network security as a service, leading to the greater need for convergence. Uh, according to Kiran, the Secure Cloud senior management team will keep their roles and maintain uh, with the company, um, with Secure Cloud's CEO and the team joining the Ariaka organization along with the Secure Cloud team. Uh, additionally, he said that uh, the Secure Cloud products will be integrated into Ariaka while the company will remain a fully owned subsidiary. Uh, the organization will realign to derive the best possible synergies, levering the strengths of the two companies. Um, as Ariaka's first ever acquisition, looking ahead, Kiran also said that he's optimistic that this won't be the last, so I'm more than sure we'll be keeping a close eye to see if there will be any further deals in the future. But that's it from me. Back to you, Melanie. Thanks, Natalie. Um, and even if we don't know the value of that deal, that really was a significant acquisition there from Ariaka. Um, now, you spoke with Shashi Khan. Um, what else did he say about the acquisition? Um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, it, it was a little bit light on the details. Um, I think he was more pointed to the fact that, you know, SACE, uh, you know, the kind of security network as a service um, is really coming to the forefront and really Ariac is just positioning themselves to best serve their customers in, in that area. Um, nothing further has really been given in terms of detail, if I'm being completely honest. I think um, I think we might hear a little bit more over the coming months, but for now they've been quite tight-lipped. Oh, well, never mind. We'll get it out of them one day. Um, watch this space then, I guess. <laughs> Thanks, Natalie. Um, so we're going to Ethiopia next, where there is a new twist in the tale of the mobile operating licenses. Now, this is a long running story. And Alan, it's one that you've been following for some time. Um, so tell us what's been happening in recent days and what this latest development means. 
Yes, thanks, Melanie. Uh, we've talked on this podcast a few times uh, over the last few months about both Myanmar, formerly better known as Burma, and Ethiopia. Um, as you'll recall, Ethiopia is trying to introduce competitors into its telecoms market, which is one of the few in the world still to be a monopoly. The others are Cuba, North Korea, and I couldn't think of any more. Um, Ethiopia has got 100 million people, so it's and one of the biggest markets in Africa. So it's a great market for the industry, in theory. Except when the deadline passed last month for applications for the two new licenses, there were just two entries on the government's doormat. There was MTM from South Africa with Chinese backing and a Vodafone Vodacom Safaricom group, which are all part of the Vodafone empire, with backing from UK and US government funds, which obviously excludes the likelihood that they'll use, say, Huawei or ZGE in their infrastructure. But why so little interest? Well, because in the last ditch attempt to hold on to its monopoly, the Ethiopian government has said the new licensees should use Ethio Telecoms Fibre, that's the um, monopoly operator owned by the government, and its tower infrastructure. Now, the good news is that this week the government changed its mind. It said suddenly, OK, you don't have to be restricted to Ethio Telecoms Fibre or Ethio Telecoms Towers opening up the possibility that there will be a new opportunities for fiber providers and tower providers in Ethiopia. I'd also mean that Ethio Telecom didn't have, couldn't set the prices, there would be competition and maybe the uh, new licensees would have a better economic model. Uh, that's too late for all those companies that didn't put in their applications <laughs> last month. Uh, but it does mean that MTN and Vodafone should see a good financial future uh, so long this is the important rider as so long as national unrest doesn't disrupt things and there's been a lot of that in ethiopia um, tigray province with uh, neighboring uh, eritrea which used to be owned by ethiopia and so on uh, a lot of uh, discord um, and of course in the model that ethiopia has been using for its liberalization of the telecoms market there's been a lot of that. Uh, they directly took the model that Myanmar or Burma had used. Um, and of course, in Burma, in Myanmar, earlier this year, the army put itself back in power. Uh, it was the army st standing back from power that allowed the liberalization to happen seven or eight years ago. And it arrested democratically elected politicians, Aung San Suu Kyi, for example, um, Back in back in custody after you know only a few years being a democratically elected leader of the country and she'd spent before that 20 25 years uh, in house arrest it also cut off people's mobile internet and international connections uh, though these were later restored so what's been the result well bad news yeah bad news for the people of myanmar who had long been hoping for democratic freedom but telenor which won one of those two new licenses back in 2013, this week announced losses or in one quarter, that's the first quarter of the year, of nearly half a billion dollars. Uh, and it wrote off three quarters of a billion dollars because of the situation in Burma entirely. I mean, the rest of the company, rest of the group was profitable, doing as well as other telecoms operators. But Burma, Myanmar set it back and it decided to write off a huge amount of money. And this is what Telenor CEO Sigver Brecker said this week. He said, due to the worsening economic and business environment outlook and a deteriorating security and human rights situation, we see limited prospects of improvement. 
And I should add that Siegfried Brecker knows Myanmar very well. He was the head of Telenor's Asian business uh, when the company won its license. So he headed that whole application process. Um, so maybe with a history like that and a precedent like that, it's no surprise that there were only two license applications for Ethiopia in April. Looks like, though, that MTN and Vodafone will on a sort of clear run to get those two licenses uh, for Ethiopia. And uh, as long as, you know, as long as things stay calm and a democratically elected government, which again was what uh, prompted liberalization in Ethiopia, as long as that stays calm and as long as they sort out the disruption on the borders, then MTN and Vodafone have got a good market to look forward to. Melanie, back to you. Potentially, yes. Potentially, lots lots to look forward to. But as you say, maybe MTN and Vodafone should speak to Telenor before cracking open the champagne this time. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yep. There's a lot to watch in these in these emerging markets. And um, thanks, Alan. That was really really interesting. Um, and I believe you also have some satellite news as well for us this week. Yes, we do. Uh, three satellite stories, or rather two related and one other story, in quick succession. Uh, OneWeb, the company that was rescued last year from Chapter 11 by Bahati Global of India and the UK government, has just won a big vote of confidence from the Pentagon. Uh, last year, the Americans and the Brits were very worried that OneWeb would fall into Chinese or Russian hands. And there was a lot of work behind the scenes to find an, alter find an alternative home for it. I I've been given a very light touch of what was going on. Um, they were very concerned. It was a they, potentially a great company. It is potentially a great company. There were very serious moves, which will only emerge in the future, I think, that China or Russia, or maybe the two of them together, were looking to buy it uh, from bankruptcy. And they would have had no, uh, no, um, there would have been no reasons to stop them, uh, except maybe to, because of uh, technology falling into the wrong hands. It would have been very hard politically to stop them buying it. So they basically had to come up with a better offer, which is what they did when Bahati and the UK government each put up half a billion dollars to, to take it out of Chapter 11. So this week, the company showed why that was important. It announced uh, a the beginnings of a deal to cover the Arctic for the US Air Force. Um, now, that's really, it's a low latency satellite because it's only a few hundred kilometers off the ground. Uh, OneWeb already has ground stations in the Arctic. There's one in Svalbard and uh, that island group in the north of Norway, right in, in the Arctic. Um, there are others probably in the area as well. And in fact, what uh, OneWeb has said that the first part of the world that it will cover from the end of 2021, uh, so only in a few months time, will be everywhere north of 50 degrees north, right up to the North Pole. So aircraft coverage, ground coverage, and of course, mobile base station coverage, backhaul and so on like that. And also, you know, individual coverage if the once the uh, terminals get come into the market, and that's been one of the slow points. And we reported a week ago that OneWeb is in advanced discussions with potential investors to provide its missing $475 million. This is in addition to Bahati and the UK government and Utilsat, which came into the mix a couple of weeks ago, as well as SoftBank and Hughes. We don't know who that will be. We'll have to be patient. Uh, but actually, somebody told me uh, last week 
that he was betting on AT&T because that's got very good connections with the US government, as, as we've just seen with this Pentagon deal, um, uh, and investing, say, $500 million would probably bring in revenue of at least a billion a year. So absolutely no brainer for a company like AT&T, a big, solid American company with really close connections to all the arms of government. And I use arms in uh, uh, a meaningful way. I think uh, the Pentagon is obviously testing what OneWeb can do, and we will see something happening in the next few weeks, I think, that will mean it's got all the money it needs for its first phase. And, and next, of course, it will be looking to develop its second generation of satellites. We'll do all sorts of other things as well. Uh, meanwhile, OneWeb's bigger competitor, which is uh, SpaceX, uh, Elon Musk's company, is also got its own uh, satellite broadband services called uh, Starlink. And this week they announced that half a million people have already ordered terminals, already ordered services. That means putting down uh, uh, $499 for the kit and $99 a month for the service. Uh, and it was sort of released when they were launching their next lot of uh, Starlink launches this week. And uh, Elon Musk confirmed it to CNBC. And he said, yeah, how, over half a million people have already placed an order or put down a deposit for Starlink. And uh, he says it's the only limitation is the potential high density of users in urban areas because they've got steerable beams. They've got too many people in one spot. You might uh, use up the capacity a bit too fast. He'd really like, I think, uh, lots of users in rural areas, and that's what they've been promoting. So uh, SpaceX has now got 1,500 satellites in orbit. That's 10 times as many as OneWeb, uh, which has got 162. Uh, and it's, as, as I say, it's already recruiting customers. So um, people are reporting good speeds. I seem to recall it's sort of 50 to 60 megs downlink, which is great. Uh, it's better than nothing if you're in the middle of the countryside, uh, 50 miles from the nearest town and a lot, a lot of fibre. So uh, already we understand 10,000 users uh, in not only in the US, but also abroad um, back in February. So the early stage users uh, who install dishes and are getting broadband from Starlink. So that's good news. All those people stuck in the middle of the countryside, they've been relying on you know, a couple of phone lines and things like that for the last lockdown period, and they need broadband just as much as those of us in cities. Melanie, back to you. Thanks, Alan. It is all very topical, isn't it, with the um, with the digital divide and the urban connectivity, and some of those speeds that you quoted are better than what you get in a lot of towns and cities in some places. Better than I get, Melanie. Yes. Hello, BT. I'm looking at you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yes, indeed, it's, uh, it's the. I think we're getting to the stage where, obviously, you know, $69 a month, $59 a month, whatever it is, is a lot of money for a lot of people. Sorry, $99 a month is a lot of money for a lot of people. You can't imagine, you know, uh, people on minimum wage in rural Scotland or rural Kenya or whatever, uh, where there isn't even a minimum wage, would be getting, would be able to afford that. Obviously, the price needs to come down, or it needs to be used to feed local mobile base stations, so you can use it with a 3G or 4G phone. But you know, it's getting to the point at which, by the end of this year, thanks to Starlink and OneWeb, there will be no. By the end of next year, 2022, there will be no 
part of Earth which has does not have broadband availability, and that includes the Arctic and the Antarctic, which have so far been the only air places you could escape it. So yeah. That would be a huge moment for telecoms and, and humankind as well, I guess. Um, thanks so much, Alan. Now, shortly we will be speaking with Simon Ford from Cyrus One, who will be sharing his insights on all things data centres, investment trusts and sustainability. Um, but before that, it's back to Natalie for a roundup on the headlines from Data Economy. Thanks, Melanie. Yeah, so just a quick roundup from, uh, from me. Um, so last week, Green Mountain actually secured a, a 50,000 metre square plot on the west coast of Norway, powered by renewable hydropower. Uh, the company reported that within five years, the site will offer up to 500 megawatts of additional power. Um, so a great uh, find from them. Uh, next, data centre and connectivity service provider Ascenti is leveraging Seabourn's international fibre network to connect its Sao Paulo and Vinhendo uh, data centers in Brazil to the US. Um, as a result, Ascenti is now linked to Seabrass One, connecting to more than 350 customers in its data centers. Um, next up, American Tower added almost 20,000 square feet and uh, two megawatts of capacity to its Atlanta-based Metro Data Center facility. Uh, formerly known as uh, Colo ATL, the American Tower Metro Data Center now has a total footprint of around uh, 44,000 uh, square feet across the second, fifth and eighth floors and has a total capacity of four megawatts. Um, in addition, Edge Connect. Uh, says it is adding an extra 20 megawatts of capacity across it, six of its US data center markets to help address demand from customers. Uh, initially, Edge Connect will add around 20 megawatts of new capacity across uh, sites in Seattle, Portland, Phoenix, Miami, Detroit and Chicago markets with plans to expand into further regions in the future. And lastly, Separate reports today by uh, Canalis and uh, Synergy Research Group found that spending on cloud infrastructure is going up by 35% a year to $40 billion in Q1 of 2021. Canalis Cloud Infrastructure Services um, says that cloud infrastructure services grew by 35% to uh, $41.8 billion in the first quarter, while Synergy Research Group said that the figure was $39 billion. Um, so yeah, that's uh, the quick roundup from me. Thanks, Natalie. Um, we are talking next day with Simon Ford from Cyrus One. Um, and Simon, just before we get into the into the nuts and bolts of the interview, this cloud story sounds like something that's right up your street. What's your take on $40 billion in a quarter? Well, I think it 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 represents um you know what what we've witnessed and what we're probably going to talk about in the in in the in the coming few minutes. Um, you know, I think uh, as many of the stories you've just covered just all add up to the same thing, which is, you know, there's an enormous migration um, to use online services in the cloud. The, the way we work is changing, the way we, we're living is ch changing. Um, you know, the fact that companies like Starlink are providing broadband to the world will only, you know, in, in, increase that. And so, you know, I think, you know, we really are at the beginning of uh, almost a revolution really in, in terms of how we're living and working and I, I would expect that just to continue. Indeed and it's a revolution that we're covering daily here at, at Capacity and Data, Data Economy um, but moving on now it's great to have you with us today and thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I want to talk to you first about data centre capacity because a lot has changed in the last year um, and as our listeners have no doubt noticed this does pose a challenge for their operations um, but you're quite vocal on this topic and you believe that there are long-term challenges to plan for too um, so tell us more. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been an exceptional year in terms of demand, and I, I think you know 
back to what we've just been um, talking just then is, you know, if you look at it from a consumer point of view, um, whether it's our habits on online buying or the adoption of cloud services to support um, our, our working online from home, uh, you know, we've wit witnessed an unprecedented acceleration of enterprise outsourcing to the cloud. Um, and in many ways, I've seen this first firsthand outside of my home home um, office window with all the vans delivering more and more things to people's houses, uh, fiber being enabled to people's houses as everyone at home is fighting for capacity, whether it be home learning or, or working from home. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of flexible working business case has been propelled forward, uh, you know, maybe maybe five years that um, um, both individuals and companies have seen a great benefit from um, this 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 new world that we've been thrust into. You know how how has that translated into us as a business? I think we've seen um, you know beginning of last year our customers brought forward their capacity needs. Uh, you know maybe by twelve to twenty four months. Um, you know so so what they were looking to take over that bit twenty twenty one twenty two was brought forward into twenty twenty. Um, and, you know, I probably would split the answer to my question here into two in terms of how it's affected us operationally. Well, um, you know, we we operate highly secure environments and, you know, the way we work in those environments is, is highly ad adaptive to meeting the challenge of COVID. So that that's that piece has been relatively simple. Um, I think where we've seen a massive pressure um, as an industry is on the creation of new supply to meet this this increased demand <clears throat> and to get ahead of the curve you know it takes us um 24 months to to build a facility and um you know to do that in an environment where we may have up to 350 people on a site at any given time we need to ensure they can work safely local guidelines that are constantly changing and met uh, we get materials and inventory delivered into the site on time you know i think it's something as a as a whole, the industry's had to pivot really quickly to um, meet to make sure that our customers' route to capacities um, met. So it's been an ever-changing landscape. I'm 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 really proud of how not just us, Cyrus One, but the industry's really you know sort of met met that challenge. And I think you know it's uh, proof that we have the capability to meet what what what's what's coming next. Also. Indeed. Um, well, looking at the Cyrus One model next, um, you don't just lease data center space, you're also a real estate investment trust. Mm -hmm. um, now, we're seeing more of these REITs in general, particularly in the markets where you're active, um, but data center REITs in particular are a little way behind other asset classes. How do you see that playing out over the coming years, particularly given the demand curves that we've just spoken about? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think um, what I'd probably do is put it in the context of where we sit against other asset classes. Um, you know, I come from a property background and many, many people in the data industry uh, come from um, a property background that's that's quite diverse. And if, if you look at if we looked at London, for example, um, you know that the London market's about 750 megawatts in total capacity. And if you took a rough rule of thumb to say, well, it's 10,000 square feet per megawatt, you're talking about 7.5 million square feet of total um data center space in London. Um, if you look at the office market by comparison, the last time I looked, it was approaching about 300 million square feet in London. So it's, it's you know, the data center market is tiny compared to the other asset classes. And, and I don't think that's ever going to change. We're, you know, we're, we're a relatively small market when, when it compares to REITs. That 
to, 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 to other um, asset classes. I think in terms of the future, so that's not going to change. I think you know that's that's where we that's who we are, and that's that's what we are. Um, but in terms of the future, if we and we look at re research. You know, we're forecasting uh, compound annual growth of about seventeen percent over the next five years. Um, I don't think other asset classes are going to see that at all. Um, and in Europe, you know, if you look at where Europe is versus the US, and you can. You can, I mean, I've, I've worked into the US for most of my career and often you can see your future in the US because what's happening is there is going to come here, maybe th three to four years um, uh, lag. But, you know, the, the US market amounts to 5,400 megawatts today and Europe's about 2,800 megawatts. And so, you know, just over half in terms of the full capacity. And when you look at the GDPs, they're about the same. So, you can only imagine that in Europe we're going to see continued strong growth in this, you know, in, in terms of the REIT um, sector, it's going to thrive. Interesting. Well, we definitely look forward to that one. Um, now, if we look at the US market now for Cyrus One, um, you're the third largest data center provider in the US. And with megawatts of power comes great responsibility, particularly on the environmental front. Um, now, Cyrus One has a carbon neutrality target set for 2040. Um, tell us what you're doing to achieve that at the moment and how you're kind of paving the way for that ultimate um, 2040 deadline. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, it's a really important um, aspect of our industry. Um, you know, we yes, we we pledged uh, recently to become carbon neutral by 2040. Um, you know, we're we're relatively fortunate in Europe in the sense that we have um, a, a a young portfolio, um, a highly efficient young portfolio, as it were. We have well-designed facilities, and so we're 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 actually starting off from a, um, a very good place. And and actually, we in Europe should reach that. Um, carbon neutral target by 2030 to 10 years ahead of um, the um, company target. Um, we have four pillars in our plan. So we look at carbon, energy, water and habitat. I think the, I'll talk to the first three in a minute, but the the, the latter habitat, I think something that is, is something that we differentiate on because, you know, we're very proud of our work. Um, on our new facilities that we're developing in creation of wetlands, habitats for pollinating species, um, working closely with local nonprofit organisations and communities to enhance planting and ecology. Um, and we're working with landscape architects at the outset to make sure that you know our, our plans are sustainable as possible. And I think um, you know, as you look at our facilities, and I've certainly seen some of the, the designs for the next generation are really exciting to um, look at what's going to happen there. Um, in terms of our pledge, uh, we're going to build upon sustainable efforts we put forward, including continued purchasing of renewable energy, um, leveraging green power and integrating um, all of the sustainable design components we can across our facilities across the world. Um, and then one exciting piece that the industry's you know, move towards is that you know, we're, we're a founding signatory to the um, Climate Neutral Data Centre Pact. Um, and we're part of that collective, which is, um, I think, last count, 25 companies and 17 associations across the industry. And we're really, you know, it's it's been established to be the, you know, to drive Europe as the first climate neutral continent in in the world by 2050. Um, we, so we understand we have a huge responsibility in this space, and our customers are holding us as accountable as their customers hold them in regard um, to this aspect. And you know, as an industry, we're working incredibly proactively to ensure we're not just reacting um, to the um, 
demands being placed upon us, but we're actually getting ahead of the curve. Excellent. Um, just coming back to the European Sustainable Data Centre Pact now, um, that wasn't the only sustainability news, global development news to kind of break over recent weeks. We've also heard from the US as well and President Biden's plans, whether directly or indirectly, are going to also impact data centres. What do operators need to do now to get ahead or at least stuck into the task at hand? Yeah, I think I would divide this into two. It's and, and it's as often is in life, this is what you can control and what you can influence. And I think what we can control is what the industry is on top of. So all the things I've listed, sort of um, uh, about buying renewable energy, uh, green power, etc. Et, et, et um, it's the things that we influence that are the challenge. So if I use the example um, of heat reuse, um, where you know we have built-in um, heat reuse uh, into our facilities to enable a local local district heating system to be able to leverage the the heat output from our building into the local community. Um, we're doing that today and um, phenomenally exciting, but the local community isn't ready for that often. And so what we're seeing is our need to partner, our need to influence, our need to get involved locally um, and assist, enable where we can, um, whether it be in legislation or whether it be in finding the engineering solution to make that work, that's where we really need to focus our efforts to really make sure that our environmental um, drive is is joined up. Um, so, so partnership and influence, I think, is really critical. Um, I think also our, our industry's um, relatively misunderstood um and i think it would be easy for legislators just to say um what what you need to do is build everything going forward into the nordics where you can get renewable power you can um uh, the, the the climate enables a more efficient um uh, cooling of the facilities but as we all know it's just not as simple as that um and i think that's where groups like the climate neutral data center pact are really important because what we're trying to do is develop a common approach in the absence of clear legislation um, but also that we're um, engaging in brussels through a policy bureau to educate um, enable debate um, and you know push for legislation in the future that really will help us collectively meet meet those goals Excellent. Um, we look forward to hearing more about that um, as the scheme develops as well. Um, I want to talk next about Ireland. Um, now, this is a huge market and one that seems to be growing rapidly at the moment. Um, now, Cyrus One arrived there in 2019. Um, just to set the scene, how has the market evolved in the last two years? Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's a market that's um, relatively unique in Europe. Um, and I think to answer that fully, you've got to look at you know why it exists as a day centre market. Um, our clients describe it as a mega cluster um, as it as it feeds into Europe, and its its success is driven by its its location, um, its proximity to the US, the the ease of getting fibre across the sea um, and into Ireland. Um, you know, has been a, a well trodden path. Um, it's got a very competitive tax structure, which has enabled companies to set up efficiently um, in in Ireland. It's English speaking, relatively easy to do business with, and I think it's been a hugely successful market and will continue to be so. Um, that said, it's dominated by the self-built com community. And if you look at the two markets, so coming back to London again versus Dublin, you know, you've got about, I think it's uh, last count, about 800 megawatts of total capacity in 
Dublin, uh, which is larger than London at about 750 uh, megawatts. Um, but even then you look beneath the surface of that um, number in Dublin, you know, 670 megawatts of that doubling capacity is um, self-built capacity from the hyperscalers. So, um, so I, I don't see that changing at all. Um, I think it will continue along the trajectory we've seen in recent years and continue to thrive as a hyperscale dominated self-built market um, with a, an active operator community in its wake. Fantastic. Um, well, in recent weeks, as mentioned, we've had huge announcements from both Microsoft and Equinix. Um, so if we look at kind of the future of Ireland as a market and also Cyrus One's position in there, um, do you feel this could be the start of a new wave of investment for the country? And if so, what does that mean for the competition dynamic? Yeah, I think so. I think um, the interesting point about market is that it's shown the same dynamics we've seen in Frankfurt, London, across the world in terms of the last 18 months. We've seen, you know, that capacity we were talking about um, earlier in this um, interview about you know the sort of 12 to 24 month sort of outlook that most of our hyperscale clients had has been brought forward and I think you know if you look at Dublin as a hyperscale um, self-build market what we have seen is leased capacity outside of that own capacity increase so the, the recent um, press release from Equinix is a, a, um, is, is, is a, is a great example of that so I think the market will continue to attract attention um, from the investment community um, but I think the challenges we're going to face in that market is around land and power um, and, and to be honest that goes across the board in all of the core markets across Europe as as the industry continues to grow. Excellent, um, thanks so much Simon. Thank Alan, Natalie, do you have any follow-up questions? My my only well, well, my main question is is that that figure, those astonishing figures that Natalie wrote, read out earlier from market the way the market is rising, forty percent per year based on first quarter twenty twenty to first quarter of twenty twenty one. Is that a number that you see? I mean, it's amazing that two separate independent market research companies came up with almost identical figures, both for the size of the market and for the growth rate. So presumably you're experiencing that, or is that being driven by the the hyperscalers, the the the, the Facebookers, the do-it-yourself people, as that you were just referring to, Sam? It's well, it's a combination of both. So I think that you'll continue to see the self-build community in Dublin, Amsterdam, um, continue to to grow, and I think it's it's natural to consider that they're going to do the same in in London and Frankfurt as those markets mature. Um, and I think, you know, uh, if you think of, um, I'm trying to think of a good analogy here, but if you think of a, a tablecloth on a table as you as you pull it up from the centre, that those sort of flap D or flap S markets, that that the, the, the tier one markets on the peak of that curve, and as you pull the tablecloth up, those tier two and tier three markets are going to come along with it. So, um, and that's where you know, from an operator uh, point of view, like us as a REIT, we'll, we'll be increasingly focus our attention into those um, emerging markets, if you like, um, in the tier two and the tier three locations. So, yeah, I mean, I think everything we're seeing, everything you've been reading about today and everything we're seeing in the news and witnessing around us in terms of, um, um, you know, how, how enabled we've become um, in, in, into the internet and into cloud services, I just, I just think it's going to continue. Is this, are we in a sort of transitionary 
or transitory transitionary period in the world where we are all suddenly going on to working from home, streaming, our entertainment, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and and the huge data uses, so that we have a a short term period of huge growth, and then it will plateau or or slow down again, a bit like I don't know the motorway building period in Europe in the late 40s and 50s and 60s, mm. or the growth of airlines in the 70s and 80s because of budget budget airlines and so on, and then it will then it will flatten out. Or do you think it'll be it'll carry on and on and on and on for the next decade or two? Yeah, it's a difficult one, and it's a little crystal ball gazing, I guess. <laughs> of course I, it is. I, I think <laughs> I, I really believe we are in the we're the beginning of of an absolute revolution, and I think if you look at um, you know, my home county of Cornwall, you know, house prices are rocketing up because the digital workforce is going, um, I just don't want to be on a train anymore. I want to, and I've enjoyed paddleboarding at nine, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. And then I, I can go to my desk by nine and, and I, my, my life is richer. I've seen more of my family, those sort of And sunset in Cornwall isn't until quite late. So you've still got yeah. a long evening. Yeah. You, yep. you get an extra half an hour. It's a, yep. it's a, yeah. That's a good one, but yeah, I, I, I must pay tribute. I, I I slagged off BT earlier, but must pay tribute to BT BT's uh, super fast Cornwall program a few years ago, and we had one of the people who were involved with that, who's now been connecting uh, the Cook Islands in 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 the Pacific, uh, though he's back in Cornwall Cornwall now. Yeah. Ronald Scarpa. I mean, you know, they did a brilliant job saying, look, let's take Cornwall, let's fiber it up. And, yeah. uh, and you're you're the example of what, how this works for people. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's, you know, the sort of Starlink program is just going to really enable, you know, bits of Kent or bits of the very tips of Cornwall that still need, you know, they're still suffering from one, one mega broadband. So I think, you know. And um, all those people who work for Vodafone in the middle of Berkshire, because <laughs> they've got absolutely. worse coverage than almost anybody. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think, you know, I, I, th I think we haven't even touched AI yet. We've not seen driverless cars. Well, we have, sorry, they, have, they exist today. But, you know, how driverless cars will develop, the amount of sensors we have around the world, how much information needs to be communicated between one vehicle and another, or, uh, you know, it, it, it's just Let's have a word for bicycles and pedestrians here. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, and, and I think, you know, yes, there may be, I definitely want to go back in the office. I never thought I'd say I want to get back on a train and commute back to London, but I, I, I miss my colleagues. But I, as a, equally, I am probably, you know, fifty percent more productive at home in terms of getting output done. So, I think we're going to see a balancing out. But I, I don't see maybe a slight softening of the curve in in the next two to three years. But um, I don't see it um, abating at all. I think we we are on a a strong path there every day this this infrastructure that we're building is being enabled in different ways and i think that's going to continue great good well that's fine that's fine for all of us all <laughs> those of us working in it yeah absolutely natalie do you have anything to add before we wrap up the interview I mean, I only had one. I always like to ask those in the in the infrastructure space, you know, particularly as we're talking about, you know, uh, rising data consumption and the uh, the demands on the network. Um, Simon, in your opinion, you know, particularly over the last year or so, have you seen um, gaming, particularly, you know, for those who've been at home and have nothing else to do, um, have you seen <laughs> gaming having a particularly large um, impact on the kind of infrastructure side of things? And do, are you seeing that becoming more and more prevalent and something that, you know, really needs to be addressed moving forward? 
Yes, I think so. I mean, it's it's probably not something that has touched us yet. We've sort of seen, I would say it's emerged and it's emerging. Um, certainly, you know, when you think of how gaming works and how connected it needs to be and where the data needs to be held, um, I think, you know, there's a, um, you know, there's a, there's, it, it's something we're going to see more and and, and more of. I mean, and, and the other thing is gaming platforms are not just used for gaming, you know, and musicians are using it more and more um, on platforms like Twitch, et cetera, to, to, to earn a living in a, in a time where they, where they can't do live gigs. So um, I, again, I think, I think these platforms um, and infrastructures are, 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 are growing. Um, they're enabling an, an, an economy that, didn't exist before and um, I think we're going to see more and more of it but I think the question will be where does it need to live whether it's in a metro like Frankfurt or, or London or whether it needs to sit closer to the um, um, end user. Yeah and I'd, I'd imagine that's where um, Edge is probably going to uh, come come in handy as everything needs to be closer for latency so um, uh, particularly yeah. depending on what games you're playing like Fortnite uh, I imagine latency yeah. would be quite yeah. important so um, yeah thank you that was my only question. Thanks guys um, and thank you Simon it's been fascinating to speak to you and thank you for all that insight that you brought us on so many different topics Um definitely echo your thoughts that were at the start of a revolution here so let's see how that plays out. Well, thank you for having me. It's been uh, it's been really good fun. Thank you. Um, well, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Thank you so much to the team for bringing us latest on all those stories. And thanks also again to Simon, as well as everybody who listened. We will be back next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, you can catch up with all the latest from across the telco and data center industries over at capacitymedia.com. You can sign up to our daily capacity news alerts and our weekly data economy news alerts. And you can also find the latest edition of the magazine, um, as well as details of our events calendar for 2021. Um, so next week, we have S SMS and messaging world coming up, um, followed the week afterwards by Capacity Middle East. Um, but for now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week. Take care and catch you next time. <laughs>